Well, tracing our family history has become something of a must-do pastime. Apparently, it is the second most common use of the search engine. My brother-in-law, Paul, is one such enthusiast. He has spent countless hours tracing his own family line and graciously ours as well. So much so that my sister has warned me never to ask him anything about our genealogy in her presence. Genealogy, she has concluded, creates a serious form of allergy. Anyway, I apparently have no famous ancestors. And just for the record, seeing it is November the 5th, I am not related to Guy Fawkes, born in York on 1570. Of course, for many in the non-Western world, our present craze is distinctly odd, given that for them, the honouring of ancestors has always been a central part of their everyday life. So Genesis 5 is the first of many family histories in the Bible. Genesis 5, 1 to 6, 8, the passage that Paulus read, appears in the text as a distinct, almost self-contained literary unit, starting with the words in verse 1, this is the written account, the book of Adam's family line. And if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 9, it seems to be a new section begins. This is the account of Noah and his family. The genealogy starts with a summary of the beginning, the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve, and moves on through ten generations shown here to Noah, the new beginning. If we were to turn to Genesis 11 and verse 10, we will find a parallel account. Starting there with Noah's son, Shem, and then again over ten generations arriving at Abraham. The two genealogies are deliberately symmetrical, both the same number of generations, both written in a stylized way, the one tracing humankind from creation to the flood, the second from the flood to Abraham. So welcome to the world of biblical genealogy. Welcome to the world's first episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And as Paulus read, and read so well, I'm sure you noticed how rhythmic and formulaic was the account. Ten generations all described with two exceptions in a particular way. Seth lived 105 years, and then he fathered Enosh, 
Seth lived 807 years after he had fathered Enosh, fathering sons and daughters. Seth's whole life lasted a total of 912 years. And then he died. And of course, with all genealogies, and this is half the fun, there are so many unanswered questions, family mysteries. Who did Seth marry? Who are these sons of God who married the daughters of humans? Who were the Nephilim? And most prominently, these pre-flood ancients did seem to age remarkably slowly. No one got to a thousand years, though Methuselah nearly made it, coming in at 969 years. Just be thankful you were not a pension fund manager in those days. But I guess the most useful question for this morning is why this account of Abraham's family line here? What purpose is it serving? And there are a number of things that we could say and should say. First, this genealogy serves as a reminder of one of the most central issues of these early chapters, namely that every human being is of intrinsic worth. Not only are we all male and female, according to chapter 5, verse 1, repeating Genesis 2, created in the likeness, in the image of God, and that image passed on from generation to generation. But all are known to God by name. At the Baptist Union Assembly last week, we broke up into small groups to pray, and I fervently prayed for somebody who I knew well and who had offered me hospitality over the years. Next day, I met a husband who said, Incidentally, Andrew, you may like to note that my wife responds better to Kathy than to Morag. We do forget names. This genealogy says, in a sense, God never does. Second, as this family tree uh, spells out, there is a painful reminder of the curse, of the sin and the death that has invaded our human existence through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. At the end of each family record is the refrain, altogether he lived a total of so-and-so years and then he died. And notice when it comes to Lamech's son Noah, at the end, the genealogist recalls the punishment to Adam, through painful toil, you will eat the fruit of the ground. And then, as this earliest family history comes to an end, we have this troubling and deeply unexpected spectacle in chapter 6 and verse 2 of the sons of God interpreted by early Jewish and Christian writers as angels, seeing that the daughters of humans were beautiful and marrying any of them they chose. Now, whatever the grim details, and there is, of course, 
much debate. It seems that this is describing something of the culmination of mankind's growing refusal to live within God-given bounds. No wonder we therefore read in chapter 6 and verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. And look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Jonathan Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, comments, the greatest weapon of mass destruction is the human heart. And linked with this, of course, is that this genealogy rather poignantly reminds us of our mortality. To us, the longevity of these ancient peoples seems incredible. Did they age just that much slower in a far cleaner, more pristine environment? Are we to understand these ages symbolically? Enoch lived, Enoch of course, to be 365, the number of days of a solar year. If we are to understand them symbolically, then nobody seems to have cracked the code. What we do know is that in ancient Near Eastern texts, such as Babylonian lists of kings, age was exaggerated into thousands and indeed tens of thousands to celebrate the importance of these people. So what we could have here in Genesis 5, in sharp contrast to those Babylonian stories, are actually, ironically, relatively low numbers. A reminder of our human lowliness and our mortality, underlined by God's words of judgment in chapter 6 and verse 3. My spirit will not contend with humans or remain with humans as it could be translated forever for they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. But perhaps the most significant reason for this genealogy here is simply this, that it forms the vital bridge between the creation story and the flood story. It is the road link between a world that has so quickly plunged into despair, and the new world of hope going to be found in Noah. After the tragedy of Cain and Abel, we are told that Adam and Eve were given another child, Seth, and other children indeed. Chapter 4, verse 25, God granted me, or God appointed me, another child. And this chosen line, this unexpected chosen line, leads directly to Noah, the comforter and the deliverer. In this month's St. Andrew's in Focus that most of you will have received through your door, I read, and you may well have read, The fascinating article by Andy Scott, 
on his journey to construct and sculptor the Falkirk Kelpies, whose small replicas, of course, have been here near the bandstand over the summer in St. Andrews. What I hadn't realized until I read that article was what a brilliant feat of engineering it was, winning awards in Scotland, engineering companies. The horses are made up of tens of thousands of small steel components, which took years to mold and construct. Eight years the project took. In the midst of a a project employing nearly a hundred technical staff, few could see what was actually going on with all these components and all these bits. But Andy Scott, the sculptor, could see. And this is the purpose of this genealogy here. In the midst of the growing chaos, in the midst of human darkness, is this account of Adam's line, conveying that somebody, some sculptor, actually does know where it is all going. God's purposes can never be thwarted. And so this leads finally to where I actually want to focus this morning. For in this genealogy, there is a surprise. And suddenly, after what appears a remote and sparse family record, saying little other than about age and offspring, with no detail or no emotion, suddenly there comes an astonishing statement about the God, the sculptor, who is behind it all. Unexpectedly, at the end of this genealogy is a poignant disclosure about how God actually feels about what has gone on. And what we discover is that God's heart is both full of grief and full of grace, broken and yet benevolent. So look at chapter 6 and verse 6. What a remarkably sobering statement. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The evil heart of humanity troubled the heart of God deeply. It can be translated, his heart was filled with pain. And tellingly, it is the same word as the increased pain given to the woman at childbirth. There is a real sense, a mystery, that though God is sovereign, though God is utterly free and self-sufficient, though God is separate from and not dependent on his creation, somehow God took a risk in creating this world with its freedoms. And now here is the pain of creative love. David Atkinson 
in his little commentary, puts it like this. Here is the wounded spirit of the artist whose work is rejected. The broken heart of the lover whose love is not returned. God has made himself vulnerable. And so the inevitable judgment from a holy God is born with great sadness. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. A heart full of grief. And yet a heart full of grace. Look how this whole account ends. Verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It is the word used of someone in authority who helps somebody without status. It is grace. We could almost read this simple sentence backwards, that grace found Noah. Before there is any mention of Noah's remarkable faith and obedience, God takes the initiative in grace. Something new is about to happen. God rep- Noah represents a new start. Though there is grief, there is overwhelmingly grace. And the next account that we will look at next week begins, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So here is the surprise. Embedded in what appears a very formal linking passage comes something deeply personal and something very intimate. Many of us struggle for a greater sense of God's closeness in our lives. Many in the past and many in the present have longed for and do long for a closer walk with God, a more intimate fellowship with God. The starting point is always to recognize the truth that God's heart for each one of us here is never anything but tender, never anything other than one of holy grief and holy grace, never anything other than has been revealed in the compassion of Jesus and supremely revealed in his death on our behalf. Here, astonishingly, at the end of this first genealogy, telling us about our ancient human fathers is a revelation of the father heart of God. That seems to me remarkable. And that leads to a final part of the surprise. For I mentioned earlier that as we read through the genealogies of chapter 5, with its repeating rhythmic formula, there is an exception. Over and over again we read, and then he died, and then he died, except when we get famously to verse 23. Although Enoch lived 
a total of 365 years. Altogether, rather, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. And then, anticipating the description of Noah, it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. One older commentator says, This astonishing paragraph about Enoch shines like a single brilliant star above the earthy record of this chapter. Here is this delightful Hebrew phrase. Enoch walked with God. God's desire for intimacy is here being reciprocated. Later patriarchs, we are told, walked before God. Abraham was a friend of God. Jacob wrestled with God. Moses spoke to God face to face. Job argued with God. Jeremiah stood before God. The high point of 8th century prophecy was when Micah said, what does the Lord require to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And here it is all anticipated in the words, Enoch walked with God. And here is God's call upon our lives this morning. It is only possible because of the tender heart of God. It is only possible as we humble ourselves and turn to Jesus Christ, the one mediator between humankind and God. But it is the calling on each of our lives. The Greek version of the Old Testament paraphrases it, Enoch, please God. And this is the version you see here, quoted in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, and using the Greek version, he was commended as one who pleases God. This is what pleases God. This is the essence of biblical piety, walking with God. Later on, this character Enoch is going to generate all sorts of speculation, all sorts of literature. There's a book of Enoch in the Apocrypha. But for me, I just love the simplicity and the comprehensiveness of these words. Enoch walked with God. Maybe you're like me, and some of the best prayer times I have is when I am out alone walking. But the whole of our lives are to be a walking with God in response to his grace. We walk with God as we allow his word and his spirit each day guide us. We walk with God as we praise him and as we talk to him and as we listen to him and as we lament before him, as we plead with him, as we did this morning in our prayers, 
in prayer. We walk with him as we are actually obedient to those directions that he gives us. We walk with him as we share the love of Jesus with others. And as I was saying to somebody this week, I never feel the presence of God more than when I am sharing my faith with a non-Christian person. We walk with God as we allow his lordship to shape our decisions and as we allow his promises to build our hope. Enoch kept on walking. He walked right into God's presence. God took him. Like Elijah, transfigured into heaven. And through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so it will be for us in that sense. An early Jewish commentator, Rabbi Jehuda, tells a parable. He says, a king has two sons. One grows up, the other is a child. To the child, he says, walk with me. But to the adult, he says, walk before me. And then the rabbi comments like this. So it was that to Abraham, God said, walk before me. Genesis 17, verse 1. But to Noah and to Enoch, God says, like the child, walk with me. In the Hebrew Bible, to remember a name and to write a genealogy means far more than filling in the right name of the next line of the family tree. God calls us by name to a life of fellowship and intimacy. He calls us by name to humble ourselves as a little child walking in dependence on his mother or father. And incredibly, this morning, as we continue to worship now, the living, almighty, creator God calls us by name. And because of Christ, because of all that Jesus Christ has achieved, we, like Noah, have found favor with him and are called, like Enoch, to walk with him.